0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, May 14th, we are studying Romans chapter 8, verses 31-39. through 39. Since there is now no more condemnation for those in Christ... Since God has done through his gospel what we could not do through the law, since the Holy Spirit dwells in Christians as a guarantee of the resurrection of the body, since our election to salvation depends on God alone, what then? With today's text, St. Paul draws this grand chapter to its grand climax and conclusion. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Stephen Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Thanks, good to be back.
0: Pastor Preuss, as we get started this morning, leading to this grand conclusion here in Romans chapter 8, give us any context that we need to know going in.
1: Yeah, I mean, the context for this, we just came off of a wonderful kind of look forward to our future glory, uh, talking about how we long to be revealed as the children of God. The creation longs to for us to be revealed because it is uh, subjected to futility, uh, and not willingly, but uh, is, is waiting for us to be set free. Uh, the redemption of our bodies and so in this hope that we have, uh, we, we're, we're waiting for it. We're waiting for it with patience, and in the midst of that, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, is helping us in this, this weakness, because we are still in our weak, sinful flesh. Uh, and as we pray, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, uh, and as He intercedes for all of the saints, uh, He does so according to the will of God, uh, breaking and hindering all the evil Uh, of of the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature, uh, and he's going to work it all out uh, for our good. All things uh, will work together for our good, for those who are called according to God's purpose. And uh, he ends right before our text with these wonderful words, "...for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified." And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And it's that that justification that we have through the call of the gospel uh, that assures us that we are God's chosen, that we are those who uh, are declared righteous in God's sight through the blood of Christ, so that there is no condemnation for those who trust in Christ. Uh, it, it, this, this really sets us up well uh, to get into these, these wonderful questions uh, that St. Paul asks uh, and, and answers uh, at this, the end of this, this great chapter.
0: There, there are it's a, a number of questions. Some of them are questions answering another question, it seems. And, and yet, as you say, they're, they're questions that he answers. They're not rhetorical questions in the sense that they're just sort of assumes the answer. Paul actually is going to give you the answer to these questions, and, and we do well to, to hear the question and, and rejoice in the answer that he gives. So with that, let's go ahead and read the text. We're in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 in our text. So, Pastor Preuss, question number one, and I suppose we could we could quibble over how we want to number the questions, but I'm going to go with the way that you've laid it out for us. So question number one is, what then shall we say to these things? Now, in that question itself, what is what is, what is these things, what does that refer to?
1: Yeah, so just to start with, this is just one of the most beautiful parts of all of the Bible, and we all know it. It, it almost goes without saying, uh, but this, this is, uh, you know, Paul... Paul says that he is not good with words at one point. He, he's almost being facetious, right? I mean, this is one of, of the most beautiful things ever penned. And so I think we should just stand in awe at how beautiful this message is for us as Christians. Um, and that's just kind of a preliminary thing to say, because just after you read it, you know, I read it to myself. But listening to anyone, especially uh, another pastor read it, it's just a a really humbling and... and uh, Wonderful thing to hear. So, uh, with that, these things, what things? Well, the, most of all, the teaching of, of justification through faith alone that is so clearly taught throughout uh, these preceding chapters. Uh, in chapter three, we see how none is righteous, no, not one. He has this series of Old Testament quotations that shows that we all uh, are sinful and fall short of the glory of God, that we're all held accountable, every mouth is shut. Uh, And then we see that we are justified freely by God's grace uh, through faith in Christ and the redemption put forth uh, by God and and the propitiation by his blood uh, on the cross. And it is by virtue of Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, his atoning death in our place, uh, and his resurrection that God declares us to be righteous through faith in him. And this is such an exceedingly joyful message, uh, and it's articulated so well, not just in chapter 3, but then again in in chapter uh, 5, we have that that beautiful beginning where it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I like to think about that with Jesus showing his wounds to his disciples in that upper room uh, the night of his resurrection, and he comes to them and says, peace be with you and shows them the wounds, and, and why do we have peace with God? Because Jesus has atoned for our sins, and we are now declared righteous uh, in him. Uh, we we have so much there in, in chapter 5 as well, but then even here in chapter 8, just the kind of uh, immediate context is usually where we start, and here he's just gone uh, to talk to us about how we are, are now heirs with Christ, uh, and how we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, we now call out to God as Father. Uh, we know that the Holy Spirit is is interceding for us as we wait for this hope that we do not yet see, but but we, we hope uh, and, and see that uh, through faith we have these wonderful things in store for us in the new creation through Christ. Uh, and, and then the, right before here in chapter, in verse 30, uh, that he talks about us being predestined, right, before the world began. He, he He chose us, but then He also called us through the gospel. He justified us here in time through Christ, uh, and through faith in His in His atoning death for our sins and His glorious resurrection. And this means we do have glory to come. And so, you know, what what shall we say to all of these things? I mean, there's so much there uh, that is so beautifully put throughout the the first seven chapters and eight chapters of Romans. Uh, that it gives us a lot to think about. but if we're gonna if we're gonna get it into a nugget, we would have to say it is that we are justified uh, through the redemption of Christ Jesus by faith alone, uh, by God's grace alone in him. Uh, and this is what gives us all of these questions to ask uh, as we we continue on here. Hmm.
0: I, I think in, just to, to go back to that point you made at the very beginning that this is one of the most beautiful parts of the, the Bible as a whole, and not just the, not just the letter to the Romans, but the entirety of God's Word. this is. I, I, I agree with you. And to stand in awe of it is, is an important reminder. I tend to, and maybe we can reflect on this a little bit more later towards the, the end as a bit of a conclusion. I, I tend to associate this text, at least in my ministry as a pastor, particularly with funerals. It, it tends to be one of my go-to epistle readings at a funeral. And I also associate it with the New Year's Eve service. This is the the appointed epistle, at least in the, I think, I don't know if it's three year, one year, or both, but it's yep. an appointed epistle. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's where I associate, and it is, it's just a beautiful text. And even as, as you're talking there about what, what Paul's referring to with these things, that as he's laid out his, his argument thus far in Romans. it seems that even he is marveling at this a little bit too as he as he writes these words, you know, what can we say to these things? And he starts asking these these questions again, not rhetorical questions, but but questions where the answer, hopefully is obvious as, as you've been been reading along. And so he answers this, well, what are we going to say about all this with a, a couple of questions to get started. Take us into, to Paul's answer to what shall we say to these things?
1: Yeah. So, with, and I I say they're not rhetorical, uh, more in the sense of you know when you think of a rhetorical question, you think of you know some kind of smart alecky uh, <laughs> question like, could the music be any louder? Kind of a thing, you know, um, to some kid who's blaring it. And so here, no, he's he's got an answer, and the first thing that he does is he answers it with a question which uh, there is an assumed answer. And if God is for us, which He is, right, who can be against us? And uh, there's, uh, there's something that's implicit in that, and that is that many are against us. And that's a hard reality as Christians. We, we have this this, you know, Paul talks about this before where he's got this just these revelations that he's had and, and just uh, we know just from the, the gospel that we have heard and all the promises that God showers down upon us, uh, we want people to believe this. We, we, it's hard for us to believe that others aren't so, uh, excited about it. Um, but there are still thorns in our flesh as, as he, he mentions, uh, we don't know exactly what his was, uh, but we do know that there are things that are working against us and, and that there are people, there are institutions, there are, there's most certainly the devil who's our arch um, and they are against us, but he asks is if God is for us, uh, and he's doing that in order to say, listen, God is on our side. And so those who are against us cannot hurt us in the long term. Sure, they give us right now uh, uncomfortable moments, afflictions, tribulations, things that he ends up bringing up, uh, and, and he has quite the list. But he wants us to see that God is... is still not just in control, but he is in control for our good in Christ. And so when we we ask the question, what shall we say to all of these things, if everybody else is against us, it's almost as if he's saying, who cares? God's for us. Mm. God is for you. Everyone else in the world can be against you, even your mother and father, to to reference the psalm, right? But God, the Lord, is on your side. He is going to uh, be your mighty fortress, your, your rock, uh, your strength, your, your, your grace, your, your everything that you need. And so uh, when you have that, even if you were to lose everything else, uh, even if everything else was completely against you, every person in the world were against you, yet you have the one who created you and all of them, too, on your side, then you have something very, very precious, for sure. Uh, And I I love that it says that uh, not that we are on God's side, but God is on our side. Uh, Sometimes we get caught up in our faith and our clinging to God to the point where we almost turn it into something that we ourselves are doing instead of the gift of God that it really is. And here he doesn't even give any opportunity to think that way. He says, God is on our side. Mm-hmm. So you just, you know, you, you hear this in the language of Paul elsewhere, where like Ephesians 6, he just says, stand, stand, withstand, stand. And we just have the armor of God on, right? And God who's on our side, he's the one who's fighting for us, and he's got us all clothed in his righteousness and salvation and and, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, of great uh uh, just divine monergism, as we call it, God working alone on our behalf in Christ right here. God's for you. Uh, who can possibly be against you then?
0: Mm, yeah, that, that divine monergism actually came up in the previous episode right at the end. In, in verse 30, as you you've already referenced for us, where he says, you know he predestined he called he justified he glorified here here it is again those things mean that god is for us this is his doing for us and i think it i think the way you laid out what these things refers to earlier and then as paul continues into verse 32 well what does it mean that god is for us it it centers first and foremost in this act of justification that he gives us freely On account of christ through faith and then it continues into all things as he'll get into verse 32 so i mean it seems that, that the question that answers the question in verse 31 builds into the statement and question that comes in verse 32 as a further answer to what shall we say to these things
1: right yeah so here if we're kind of following that first question what then shall we say to uh to these things Uh, The second answer would be, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so, you know, what shall we say to these things? Listen, he gave you the very greatest thing. So this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. God gave you the greater gift of his son, right? So he gave him for you, and he did not spare his son, Like Abraham was asked to spare Isaac, and the ram was put forth as the sacrifice instead. Instead, here is the only son who goes all the way, and he goes all the way for us. And God gave him for you. Um, John 3.16 is certainly something we think about with that, too, that God gave his only son. This means he gave him up into death for your sins. The very context of that tells you where he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up, right? And that's the context of that beautiful, for God so loved the world, and that he gave his only Son. So if he's going to give his, his, his very best, so too he will also give the lesser gifts, uh, what is one commentator calls the, the supplementary gifts. So these are these are supplementary gifts. The, the main gift is Christ. He's the perfect gift, but all gifts come down from the Father of light. And another commentator says that the argument is not merely from the greater to the less, but it's also a statement of the impossibility of not completing what God began at so tremendous a cost to himself. If he's going to give you the, the, this most precious treasure— the bright jewel of his crown, as Luther says it, and dear Christians, what an all rejoice, you know, and he's going to give him into death and pour out his wrath upon him for all of your sins. Surely he's going to give you all things, and all things means all the things that we need for this life, uh, which would be our daily bread as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, but also, you I mean that would extend into eternal life as well? But just the context here would would suggest uh, daily bread first and foremost. Uh, just because he, those are the things that we're often worrying about as we go through uh, tribulations and and so forth, uh, while we tarry here on earth and we cling to Christ and this this gracious promise. So uh, this this is a wonderful answer where he is responding to, you know, what do we say to these things? God gave us the very best of things, his Son, into death for our sins. Surely he's going to give us everything else uh, that he has promised as well, uh, whether that be our, our daily bread or the eternal life uh, that we have, and the resurrection and the hope that we have in that as well.
0: In this In this question there that Paul has, how will he not also with him? graciously give us all things that yeah. these these gifts come with Christ and I'm I, as as you were talking and in, in your notes on this too I, I wonder if if there's a, a relationship there to what Jesus when Jesus talks about prayer I'm thinking particularly in John's gospel and he talks about whatever you ask in my name I will give it if if this isn't a bit of a commentary or at least helps us to understand that a little bit better that that when God gave us Christ he gave us all things with Christ and, and all those things yeah. being what we need, and, and, I mean, into daily bread, but also all those things that are ultimately going to serve the greater good, the good according to his purpose, verse 28, all this pointing us back to, to justification. I, maybe I kind of talked myself in a circle there, Pastor Price, but hopefully that made sense, that that with Christ, the gift Christ, comes all things that we need. Does that, does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, when I was a boy, we learned a hymn. It's not in our present hymnal, but uh, one of the verses was, or stanzas, I guess. We're supposed to say stanzas. I'm supposed to correct people on this whenever I do it myself, so... uh, Verses are for uh, other poetry, I guess. But it says, uh, "...we have all things Christ possessing, life eternal second birth, present pardon, peace, and blessing while we tarry here on earth, and by faith's anticipation, foretaste of the joy above, freely given us with salvation by the Father in His love." With him, you have Jesus, you have everything. That's why in Matthew 6, he says to them, you know, why are you anxious about what you will wear and what you will eat? I mean, I tell this to my wife, too. I say, remember the lilies, remember the remember the birds. He's taking care of them. And she says it back to me uh, whenever we're anxious and worrying about things. This is a good message for all of us right now and for all of those who are listening Um, when it comes to the coronavirus, too. Seek first the kingdom of God, right? That is, seek Christ. Seek His righteousness, right? And all these things will be added to you. He will take care of you. Uh, Cling to Christ. uh, See that He has not spared His—God has not spared His own Son— and he will also give you all the other things that are needful for this life and for the next. And he will work through whatever suffering you have to endure, as, as you know, we've heard in in previous uh, chapters in, in Romans, uh, and as we'll continue to hear here as we look at these other questions. But yeah, I, I think also of John's Gospel as well, that, you know, you ask in his name, uh, and this will come up in just a little bit here too, but you ask in Jesus' name because that's the only way you can even approach the Father in the first place. Uh, otherwise, He's a wrathful God. He is, it's, it's like saying, I believe in God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's a terrifying God. But when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, which you can say, for Christ's sake, right, because He has atoned for your sin, and you are now, through faith, through baptism, you are now God's children through Christ, uh, you're able then to look upon God as Father, which is certainly a major theme there in, in in Romans chapter eight.
0: That takes us then into question number two. As again, we could there are lots more question marks than we're going to count. But in terms of the way we're looking at it, question number two in verse thirty-three: Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We got about four minutes here before the break, Pastor Price, to get started looking at this question and answer.
1: Yeah, so the question itself, that who shall bring any charge against God's elect? um, Paul is asking this question because there are those who are going to try. So we know the Satan, the world, our own sinful flesh, namely our conscience, which is going to accuse us and is not going to let us have any rest as we look at our life compared to God's law, or worse, we, we look at our life according to a false law, Uh, that Satan has set up, or we've set up, or the world's set up, and and start having this this evil conscience that doesn't actually know what God's Word actually says. But Satan and the world, our own conscience—let's just deal with God's law at this point—will accuse us, saying that we are not good enough for God. And when we look at ourselves, of course we're going to say, that's true. And so there's going to be within us this acknowledgement of, yeah, he's right— When it comes to my sinful flesh, I am not good enough for God. I'm not even close. When I look at the spirit of the law, uh, and in in addition to the letter of the law, uh, there's no way on earth that I can possibly stand before the throne of God and say, here's my life, Lord, take it. And so Paul's question is really aimed at whether these charges will stand against us whether it be our own accusing finger, the accusing finger of the world, or the accusing finger of the accuser, uh, Satan himself. And he says uh, that we are the elect. There's kind of an a, a answer in the question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's almost like, you really think you can do this? You think you can go up against God who chose these people? Uh, they're mentioned again at the end of, of the uh The letter to the Romans here in in chapter 16, verse 13. Um, In fact, that's the only two places where the chosen ones are are mentioned, the elect. But the answer is, it's God who justifies. You are not the judge, and the world is not the judge, and Satan is not the judge. In fact, Satan's been judged according to the Holy Spirit's conviction, uh, and Jesus sent him for that. So God's the judge, and there's no charge that's going to be considered valid If the judge himself has justified us which he has through the blood of jesus which means all accusations are dismissed through the blood of jesus and and that's that's a wonderful truth for us
0: Mm -hmm. i'm reminded a a bit as you're talking about satan has been judged you know the the title satan means accuser this is this is one of his primary roles is to accuse and so I'm, i'm reminded just just briefly of revelation chapter 12 where where satan is thrown out of heaven that his his accusations yeah. are no longer heard and and as you said precisely because of the blood of Jesus that's that's how how the the that's how they've conquered is is through the blood of the lamb by the word of their testimony and and Paul's got that same same thing going on here in in Romans chapter 8 that these accusations cannot stand because the judge himself has has thrown them out of court. I mean, think of uh Paul Paul went into this was it in I don't know, it was chapter 2, 3 when he was laying out that all all men are unrighteous. He he really highlighted God's role as judge over all. And then of course that that role as judge comes in again when he justifies and remains just through the the blood of Jesus Christ. And here now it's the judge, God throwing out any any accusations because he's already delivered the verdict. In the blood of His Son Jesus Christ, I'm going to let you respond to that if you want, Pastor Price. But we'll do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. Going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Thursday, May 14th. We are looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 with Pastor Stephen Preuss of Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we looked at Paul's first two questions in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? Verse 33 who shall bring any charge against God's elect we talked about that answer it is God who justifies verse 34 brings up question number 3 who is to condemn take us into that question and then into the answer that Paul gives
1: when you look at this question there's kind of an assume who is to condemn God's elect because he's already already mentioned them and there's a progression here it started in in verse 31 If God is for us, who can be against us? So you've got this against us language, and then it moves to, in verse 33, who shall bring any charge? And so it seems a little stronger here, not just people against, but there's actually an accusation being leveled against us, which we kind of talked about there, that they know the case is closed, and nobody can reopen it, because Christ is the is the uh, atonement for our sins, and God has, has put his gavel down and kicked out all accusers, and only Christ can sit at the right hand of God, as we'll talk about here in just a second. But okay, so you've gotten this against us, and then charged against, and then all of a sudden he gets into this word condemn. So who is to condemn God's elect? And this is, this is stronger language. There is a progression here. To condemn is to say that God damns them, to hell, they're going to go to hell. Uh, this is a very strong word. And so we all endure this kind of an idea uh, that we are going to go to hell when we, we think about, like, Luther's hymn, Dear Christians, Want to All Rejoice. Again, this is in my mind because we just sang this on Sunday, but uh, you, you have this life becoming a living hell in our own consciences, because we have to endure this idea that we would actually be condemned for our sins. The law terrifies us so much, uh, as it, it it does not leave any wiggle room and says that no one is righteous. And so we might get this this confusion in our minds as Christians that that we are condemned because of our sin. The devil, the world, uh, even family and friends will 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 condemn condemn us of this. They should actually warn us uh, of, of using any kind of strong language unless it is warranted uh, to, to warn people about their, you know, what leads to condemnation. Uh, and so the question, who is to condemn, uh, is a very, very strong one. Now, you, you see that also with uh, when it comes to the condemnation received from others uh, in Jesus himself. In fact, you do not see anyone in Scripture uh, condemned more than Jesus is, as you look at the way that the the, the Jews treat him with their kangaroo court, uh, and then the way that he is then sentenced uh, and condemned and mocked and ridiculed and said, you know, save yourself, and uh, even condemned by one of the, the the thieves on the cross. And so you see here uh, a very strong word, who is to condemn God's elect? Many will try. Many will make it seem as if they are condemned because of the way that they are being treated. Jesus was killed, right? He must have been condemned to death and, and more, uh, according to the world's eyes. And and that's the way it can look to us as well. So it's a very good question that gets to the heart of the Christian conscience, Uh, and how it might feel to us with all of these things that are adverse to us, and knowing that we're sinners too at the same time. So that's the question, Uh, and the answer is right there where it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the, the response to who is to condemn God's elect is answered by no one is going to do that when you have Christ mm. interceding for you uh, at the God's right hand, and, and how did he get there? Well, he got there through his death and his resurrection. Mm. So some people will get confused, they'll say, well, yeah, let's talk about Jesus' death, but more than that, let's talk about his resurrection. Well, that's not quite what he's saying here, he's He's not saying, you know, pitting the death and resurrection against each other, They're they're connected as one event. Uh, just like we see, for example, uh, at the end of Romans chapter 4, where it says that our Lord Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Uh, This is the response here to that question. Who can condemn? We have the crucified one. We have the risen one. We have the one who is now ascended and is our advocate uh, at the Father's right hand. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is righteous and was was uh, gave his life for the unrighteous, right, in order to bring us to God, as Peter puts it. So indeed, as we translate that word, this means that Jesus pleads for us right now. If he's at God's right hand, he is constantly pleading for us, and our sins are continually forgiven at God's right hand. Uh, Hebrews 7 says this, that consequently he, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So who is to condemn? Well, when every accuser has been cast out, and Christ is there as your advocate— He's not going to condemn you. He was already condemned on the cross for you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For them. He's not going to stand there and say, I did all of that for naught. No, I did that for you, for us. That's a vicarious language there, right? He's interceding for us. He already interceded for us on the cross. He still has those wounds, and he shows them to the Father just as he showed them to his disciples on the day he rose from the dead. Uh, and he wants you to think upon those wounds too, and receive the fruits of those wounds. Baptism, the Lord's body and blood for your forgiveness, uh, that you might know this truth that He intercedes for you right now at the Father's right hand, even as the Holy Spirit intercedes for you uh, here on earth. Mm. Uh,
0: this, <laughs> Pastor Percy, it's it's just hard to hard to respond to that, and and not not because you didn't you said it well, but it's it's hard to respond to just how beautiful this really is. Uh, you know who who is to condemn? And Paul gives not to. I hope this doesn't sound trivial, but he gives the Sunday school answer. He says Jesus, and this is what he did, and he lays it out so beautifully: his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his his session at the right hand, which includes his intercession. I mean, it's just again, how do you how do you not, as we said at the beginning, just just marvel at the the wonder, the comfort of this, and and to see. I, I think I, I like the way you laid it out as as a a progression here of, of oh, where does it start? He he did who did not. There's no no. Ah, where does it start? I've got the charge, the condemnation. Oh, who who against it? That's it. The, who can be against us? That's the first one. So who's going to be against us? Yeah yeah. Who cannot bring any, any charge? Who's going to bring a charge? Who's to condemn? It's getting stronger. Do you, I mean, do you think, and I don't know, do you think verse 35 then is is the culmination of that? that? That the condemnation in verse 34 that he brings up, the reason that's so serious is because that would mean separation from God. Is that the, the final move in this progression, do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so that's where he's going with this, is that, you know, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? That's that last question. And uh, what he's doing here is, I, I, I do believe he's kind of shifting here from, from these, these enemies who are, are directly trying to accuse or condemn us before God to more the misfortunes that are used to attempt to separate us from God's love in Christ, too. Uh, that, that It's not just always an accusation that uh, gets us, but sometimes we're worn out. Uh, to the point where we look at our situation in life and what we're getting, and we start to wonder whether God has forgotten about us. And we can start to uh, think upon this, what one one homiletician said is the mirror of existence, where it's not that the law is accusing us necessarily here, but but that we see our existence and we, we, we notice what's behind that uh, us when we look in the mirror and we see all of the terrible things that are going on in our lives and, and that are directly affecting us. Uh, and so uh, the, the question then becomes, is there anything that can, can make our lives so miserable that it would mean that Christ doesn't love us anymore, that God doesn't love us anymore? Um, as one uh, theologian put it, is there anything that can make the love of Jesus to be ineffective so that we shall lose our connection with him, lose our faith, lose our hope. And uh, he then, you know, Paul talks about these potential things that could threaten to separate us from Christ's love. Um, and, and, And as he talks about these things, he shows how life can and does often go for those who are the elect, those who have been predestined and called and justified and, and will be glorified and, and already are through faith in Christ, uh, these things that are adverse to us, they, they make the world and our sinful natures think that God has stopped loving us. And so he mentioned several of them. Tribulation. Uh, these are—literally, the word means a kind of a pressure where we're kind of being uh, under great pressure. Luther used the word tentatio, which which is kind of a tension— Fechtungen uh, in the German was it's, it's these things that the devil throws our way and that God will use uh, in order to uh, bring us an understanding of our own frailty so that we cling to him again. Uh, but these, these things happen. There are lots of pressures in our lives, distresses. That's a word that kind of focuses on the narrowness of, of life, the narrow way that we take um, Persecution—we're being pursued. Famine—we're in want of food. Nakedness—we're in want of clothing. These are things that you know uh, mentioned—they—they uh, they, they take place because of us being persecuted as Christians. Uh, and so there is a lot of danger, and it's—it's—it's not—it should not be surprising to us, since Paul is writing this, that there are other parts of, of Saint Paul's letters that actually address this. Uh, and if you look at Second. Uh, Corinthians chapter 11, you see that he mentions all of these things except for the sword, uh, but most especially the danger as those things that he has to uh, endure. Uh, he talks about, you know, the all of the different things that he goes through, but then he talks about, and starting in, in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, that he's on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. It's just this, just danger, danger, danger everywhere. And so he, he wants to bring out all these things, and ultimately the sword, which we know that Paul and many of the martyrs ended up facing death itself, that can any of these things that they're enduring as the elect, as Christians, separate them from the love of Jesus? And uh, his answer, obviously, is going to be to be no. Uh, but he, he goes on one last time in, in Psalm 44, he quotes that in verse 36, where Paul ends up talking about suffering that's unique to the children of God. It's persecution because we are God's own. And uh, that's where he quotes uh, there the, about the sheep, uh, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, And as he, he mentions this, it's important for us to see that all of us as humanity face things that are adverse to us and afflictions in this life. But as Christians, we face them particularly because we are Christians, because we are God's own. And so there is an emphatic, for your sake... Uh, we are being persecuted. That is for the sake of Christ. And so you think about John 15, where Jesus says, the world will will hate you because it hated me. All right? It'll persecute you because it persecuted me. You're not better than your master as of my servant. They're going to persecute you uh, even as you keep my word uh, and expect these things. So that's the last thing we should think then is that because of all these terrible things that are going on in our lives, this means that we're separated the love of God. No, no, no. Jesus actually said that these are the things that you will have to And if you look at the history of the Christian Church and uh, and martyrdom, uh, Professor uh, is his commentary says, perhaps it's not too fanciful to see in the seven nouns which follow the compressed history of a Christian martyrdom. This is simply the way it goes for those who are Christians in this world. We're in constant danger, like sheep going to slaughter. And and who regards us that way? Well, the world certainly does. The devil tries to convince us of it, and that's the problem. We end up thinking that way, that we're worthless, that, that, that you know, like Jesus dying on the cross, it looks so terrible according to the eyes. Uh, and this is true for all Christians. We think like this. Uh, and though we might not have gone through all of those things that he mentions, not in degree, it might not be the same, but he paints such an extreme picture on purpose in order to include all of the lesser things that we have to suffer here, too. So that's a, the that's a long kind of uh, answer to the question of who shall separate us from the love of Christ. So many things that are potentially could separate us in our minds and in our consciences, but his answer is no. Mm. No, that's not going to separate us. And all of these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'll stop there, because uh, I've been talking for so long, it seems uh, maybe you wanted to jump in here.
0: Sure. Well, I think, I mean, just a, a few thoughts, because I want to let you get into these these last couple of verses, too. But just the, the matter of, you, you brought up Christ's words in John 15, where, where he tells them, you know, if if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. You're, a slave is not greater than his master. I think of the the matter of, you know, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered when Jesus sent his apostles out in Matthew 10, I think it was, where he, he tells them, I send you out like sheep among wolves. And, and I yeah. think, I mean, you know, that, I think that helps. And of course, Paul's going to give this very emphatic, no, none of these things are going to separate us from Christ's love. But the fact that, that Christ tells his Disciples and his church ahead of time. This is the way it's going to be. If he's the one who's doing the sending, he's he's not going to send where where he's not gone already. I mean, and I'm, this is bringing to mind baptismal connections that that in baptism we've died with Christ already and we've been raised with Christ. So as we face these these dangers, we know what the end of the the story already is. We know Christ's resurrection. We know we've been connected to that. And I think that's, and hopefully that, that segues back into verse 37 for you then, because that's where Paul's going to say, he's going to say, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, but it's not my victory, it's not my conquering, we're conquerors through him who loved us. So take us into that first part of the answer, Pastor Price.
1: Yeah, this divine monergism just continues, and not just divine monergism as if God just zaps us into faith and, and there's no content behind this but that the reason he gives us faith is through the very message of what Christ has done for us. Uh, The gospel is that through Jesus' blood and merit, we have peace with God, that we are justified through faith in Christ, who has gone the way for us already. And in our baptism, we most certainly are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, so that as we uh, die to sin, we rise with Christ— And it is as if we died on the cross and have risen from the dead, and by faith this is happening. We are conquerors with Christ, Uh, and where the head goes, the body comes with it, and he is victorious over sin, death, hell, the grave, and he has done it for us as our substitute. Uh, He is the one who loved us, and this is an overwhelming, complete victory then even in the midst of all the terrible things that we must endure in this life, which God does use as a loving Father to chastise us, to discipline us, to train us, so that we might continue in the faith. Uh, but He is saying to us to give us great comfort, uh, and again, some of the most beautiful words that you can possibly have, uh, that that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So God is assuring us that any of the enemies that we have to face whether it be the enemies of sin, uh, our sinful nature, our, our, the devil, the, the world, and our own communities in which we live, whether it be the afflictions that our enemies will use in order to weigh us down, uh, they are already conquered in Christ. God is saying that's what Saint Paul wants us to know. And so, if they're conquered in Christ, they are conquered for those who are Christ's, uh, and we are Christ's in our baptism. We are. Christ through faith. So even before we face all of the things that we have to deal with in our lives that are going to be anything like a tribulation or a distress or a persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or even sword, yet we already have one who holds the field for us, who's already gone that way, and He takes us with Him, and He holds that field forever. Uh, and so before we even face these things, we have that confidence And we should always know that God—you know, I mentioned the Hebrews 12 that God is our Father who disciplines us through these things. But here in Romans, he talks about this. We've already discussed this in Romans chapter 5, that, you know, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, you know, having been justified by faith. But then he he ends up going on in in Romans 5— where he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in this grace. It does not go away. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that is ours. But then he says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And all of that is to say that God does use these situations for our benefit in order to uh, produce in us a character that then is clinging by hope to the glory that is to, uh, going to be revealed and clinging by faith to that verdict of justification through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's why he ends up saying, I am convinced, I am persuaded, I am sure. Uh, the, the verb here, it's perfect passive, meaning both that he's convinced, he remains convinced, he will continue to be convinced, and also there's a divine passive, uh, that that is that it's not he who has convinced himself by, you know, uh, thinking this through really well, but it's God who has done that upon his heart, upon his mind, and given him a new persuasion along with faith uh, that persuades him through the Word of God to say, I'm convinced. I'm convinced because look at the blood of Jesus. I'm convinced because God has made a declaration in his resurrection. All my trespasses were placed upon Jesus, all my sin is washed away, and I am now righteous in God's sight through Christ. And so he's convinced of it, this word, so that he can then get into that that beautiful ending that we know. Mm. Um, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, this love centers on Christ. It doesn't just say the love of God and just leave it at that. It goes on in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how you know love. You want God's love? Look to Jesus Christ. Look to his cross. Look to his resurrection. Look to justification that you have in him. And, and you have everything that you need uh, when it comes to having this convincing uh, word that St. That Paul had. He didn't have anything more than you have, and so believe that. He's saying this for your sake, so that you might know that whatever anybody else thinks of you, nothing can separate you from the one who reconciled you to God uh, by his atoning blood.
0: Mm. Pastor Price, we got about four minutes here and that's, it's such a, a wonderful text, as, as we've said a couple times. So let, let's just take that, that remaining time and, and reflect a little bit upon this text and the, the use for it for us as Christians. I mentioned earlier that I tend to associate this text with, with funerals, with New Year's Eve, uh, as the times when it shows up in the church here or in my, my ministry as a pastor. Uh, just, just reflect upon this text and its, its use for us as Christians as we wrap things up this morning.
1: I'm glad that you mentioned the funeral. Uh, the New Year's Eve, I, I sometimes just do the eve of the circumcision of our Lord and the naming of Jesus, so I uh, I don't always do it for that, but I, I've had, you know, been a pastor for a little while now, I've had over 50 funerals, and when you're doing funerals, you, you notice in the prayer, uh, this is so right after the sermon, you're going to hear the pastor uh, pray, and it's, it's the prayer of the church for our funeral service. And I'm always, uh, I always have this this wonderful, I mean, it's just such a joy as I'm praying the prayer and I end it. And we, we've, we've prayed uh, to our God and Father who raised Jesus from the dead. We're talking about how we we're all knit together in one communion in the mystical body of Jesus and how. You know, we want to give this joyful message to uh, the congregation about how this person's been nourished by the Holy Body and Blood of Christ. He's been baptized, comfort these people who mourn in in the resurrection, the great reunion in heaven. And at the very end of the prayer, it says, O God of all grace, you sent your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to bring life and immortality to light. We give you thanks that by his death he destroyed the power of death, and by his resurrection he opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers strengthen us in the confidence that because He lives, we shall live also. And then it quotes this beautiful, beautiful part of Romans, that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come will be able to separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And every time I pray that, I am reminded of, again, how beautiful and applicable this is, at the the worst moments in our lives when we are mourning death of loved ones. And we're reminded that even death cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ, and that because He lives, we will live. So it gives it a very vivid, concrete uh, application. And we have plenty of those throughout our lives, not just death, which is why one of my favorite hymns is uh, in our Lutheran service book uh, hymn, 746, Through Jesus' Blood and Merit, uh, which is a versification of this, uh, this text. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful hymn. Through Jesus' Blood and Merit, I am at peace with God. What then can daunt my spirit, however dark my road? My courage shall not fail me, for God is on my side. Though hell itself assail me, its rage I may deride. And I would just commend that hymn. To all of the listeners, go and sing that hymn or read that hymn, Hymn 746, and just derive great comfort devotionally in your life from that, because it is something that is going to—I always tell my parishioners, I, I bet you do the same thing, is that whenever you see Romans 8, you're like, ah, oh, this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. Although, we do that all the time with all sorts of verses, but but this one, it really, really is, and I think it's for a good reason. Uh, so, wonderful, wonderful text.
0: Pastor Stephen Preuss is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, Iowa, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Pastor Preuss, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Questions, but wonderful answers. Wonderful answers from St. Paul. What shall we say to these things? God's for us. Who can be against us? No one. Because he gave us his Son, and he will give us all things with his Son. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? No one. The judge has already declared the verdict in Christ. Who who will condemn? No one. Christ Jesus died, rose, ascended, and he now intercedes. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was convinced by God's word. You and I have that same conviction from God's Word. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.